Our sermon today, uh, our first reading comes from Ephesians. Yes, that's in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians 1, uh, I'm going to uh, look at two passages from Ephesians today. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Then our second passage from Ephesians comes from 3.14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power of the work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So as you all know, uh, Chris has been working through Ephesians, and so when I found out uh, a few days ago that he would not be uh, doing the sermon and that I would uh, need to uh, preach this Sunday, I decided what I would do was read through Ephesians and uh, see if I was led to any particular point or passage. Um, now, this task has made a little bit more difficult because I have not been out of town the last two weeks, so I haven't heard the sermons Chris has been doing from Ephesians. So um, I'm, I may repeat some material, so bear with me if I do. Um, but I do want to make one uh, just very practical point uh, as I was preparing this sermon by reading through Ephesians. You know, when, uh, we often don't read straight through books of the Bible from beginning to end. But uh, I found it is, it's a really great practice because it's a fantastic way to better understand the individual passages in light of the larger theme. And I think that's something we miss at times because we do tend to break down uh, books into like chunks that are manageable and, you know, totally practical. It totally makes sense. But uh, as you know, uh, as we say over and over in Resurrection Church, uh, context is uh, really important. So, if you read through Ephesians, one thing that is readily apparent is that the letter can be divided pretty pretty neatly into two clear halves, chapters 1 and 3 and 4 and 6. And they contain two separate but related themes. So, chapter 1 through 3 focuses on the mission of God. 
in chapter 4 through 6 focuses on the mission of the church. And pretty much any uh, commentary you were to pick up on Ephesians is going to be very consistent on that point. But what I want to do in today's sermon is look at the intersections of the two chapters and see what they tell us, or the two halves and see what they tell us. So you'll notice our second reading uh, actually crossed from chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, into the beginning of chapter 4. And I chose this passage because I think that will allow us to explore uh, what I think is a pretty fascinating question that Ephesians is getting us to ask, namely, How does the church fulfill its purpose and mission in light of the purpose and mission of God? So if the first half is about the purpose and mission of God, and the second half is about the purpose and mission of the church, how are those two connected? And I think this is going to be like a really important, I think it's going to be a very practical point. You know, this isn't going to be uh, like an exercise in abstract theology. I think this is going to be something that we can really take. And and I think it's going to tie together a a lot of, um, particularly uh, what we think about worship. Uh, What what is the, the point of worship? And I think that as I read Ephesians, I think the central question Paul is trying to answer and, and by doing so, educating and energizing and motivating and invigorating this church in Ephesus is to be part of the plan that God has for the cosmos, which is like really grandiose, okay? And that's why the language is so exalted as we read through this. I mean, you can hear it in the passage, just this, you know, these big themes and big terms, and, and, and it's really exciting. But he does this on purpose because what Paul wants to do is he wants his Gentile converts, so these people in Ephesus, these are, these are like uh, people who are like totally unfamiliar with God and the scriptures. They come from a completely different background. And uh, what he wants them to do is to say that uh, in identifying with Jesus, uh, when you identify with Jesus, it's more than just a set of practices, uh, some ritual practices in some place you go on Sunday. And, and that's what religion looked like to the Gentiles. Uh, they were very familiar with all these strange Jewish customs. I mean, things like circumcision and like not eating pork. Okay. You know, which is like crazy, right? Um, but yeah, I'm from North Carolina. So yeah, no barbecue weird. Um, In part, Ephesians is trying to argue against this understanding of religion now that the old customs that divided the Gentile world from the Jewish world had been obliterated and those customs had become meaningless. But Paul does want them to know something. He's not trying to get rid of Judaism. That's not his point. Uh, Paul needs these converts to adopt a more Jewish vision of the world featuring a God who is not abstract and distant like they would have known in their culture, but a God who is very much a part of the world, who uh, has a plan and mission for this world, who is involved in the world, and that they as Christ followers, importantly now, are a part of. This is very different from the Greco-Roman religious world they knew. But it was a world that was very well understood by Paul as someone who grew up and lived in this Jewish worldview. So what Paul does in Ephesians is he begins Ephesians by praising God. And specifically what he does is how God is at work in the world. God has a purpose. He has a plan. Uh, he, Paul describes it as a mystery that has been unveiled. 
Uh, Paul uses all of these descriptions of God in chapter 1, in the passage in chapter 1 he reads, uh, that we read. In other words, God is not arbitrary. God is not making it up as he goes along. He's doing this through Jesus Christ. You know, my kids are really totally, for some reason, they're really into the Iliad and the Trojan War. They really like that a whole lot. And so we spend a lot of time. There's this great podcast called Greeking Out in which they, yeah, my kids love it. I know Matthew's kids love it too. Anyway, it's great. But uh, we spend a lot of time, they've been talking about the Trojan War and they talk about that. And if you know anything about like, you know, back in high school class when you read it or whatever, um, the Iliad, the gods are very arbitrary there. They're just like responding to circumstances. Uh, What Paul's trying to get across is, no, God has had this plan like from the beginning. And now you... Gentiles in Ephesus are being a part of it. Um, So uh, uh, God creates the world. He blesses the world. This is very Jewish. And what he wants to do is fix the brokenness of the world. Now, what Paul says is that he is doing that through Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Ephesians to understand that Jesus is the culmination of this ancient plan that God has for humanity in the ancient world. Remember, antiquity, something ancient, was something that was like really valued uh, by this uh, Greco-Roman world. So, you know, they hear something ancient, and that's going to be meaningful to them. Uh, Paul says uh, as much in this amazing line, I think this is like the reason I wanted to read this passage is because I think this is really what the main theme of Ephesians is about. So if you look at chapter um, 1, verses 9 and 10, uh, the point is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So that's like the plan, okay, right? Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what Paul is telling us in Ephesians is that the point, the goal, the purpose, the end game, uh, you know, the, the, the great Greek word, you know, if you want to sound like all smart, the teleos of God's plan then is uniting all things, which is defined as heaven and earth. The divine realm and the human realm is being brought together. And that's what is meant. And that's what is being accomplished in the work of Christ. Remember uh, the Lord's prayer. What is, what is, what is Christ saying? Uh, Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kind of idea here. God has this plan for the world. And that is actually being worked out and accomplished in the earth through Christ. And this word that's used here for unite is one of these really cool words that's like way better in the original Greek. The word is, get this, anakephaleosothai. Anakephaleosothai. I tried to say that like 15 times this morning so I could say it like all cool and you could be like, wow, he's really impressive how you just let that roll off the tongue and really accomplish it. Um, yeah, but it's 19 letters long. Crazy. Yeah, Greek. What a crazy language. Um, But it has this idea. The idea of this word is summing up or concluding. Uh, The central word is kephala, which means like head, but it means head is like in an organizing center, you know, like the brain controlling everything, right? 
Um, and then it has this prefix ana, which means uh, it gives intensity. It's like extreme, you know, extreme organizing principle, right? Um, and so Paul is using this word. Paul, Paul also, like, uh, for example, uses this word in Romans. He says, like, all the Ten Commandments can be summed up, can be anakephalosathide. Okay, they can all be summed up in uh, the concept of loving your neighbor. Okay, so loving your neighbor sums up all the Ten Commandments. So, so what Paul is saying here is that God's plan is summed up. It's concluded. It's brought together in Christ. His will is done on earth as in heaven. So in other words, all the disparate elements uh, are now given coherence. They're given closure. They're given finality in a way that is clear and makes sense. It's like what a good summary statement does, right? Like, so, you know, maybe somebody's like communicating a bunch of information to you and you're like, I'm lost. And then all of a sudden they, they give you that statement, that like phrase, and you're like, ah, okay, I get what you're trying to tell me now. You know, think about like a TV or a movie, you know, they'll do this every once in a while. There'll be all these different subplots. And you're like, I don't really know how they're related. Like, what, what's going on here? And then, you know, maybe like the season finale, they connect it all together. And, you know, you get this like great sense of satisfaction of seeing how it's been all brought together. Like TVs and novels and things like that love that. And that's what Paul is trying to get across here with this concept uh, of bringing together, of summing up, of unifying. And so that's what he means when he talks about the mystery being revealed. In other words, what Paul is trying to say here is Christ has changed everything by bringing this Jewish story that he knows very well to its completion. And they, the Gentile converts in Ephesus, are now part of this story. And Paul tells them that because they are Christ's followers, they are part of this inheritance. This story is their story too. They are part of God's mission to sum up, to gather, to unify the cosmos together. All the brokenness, the fracturing, all the things that we would say are wrong with the world. You know, war, poverty, abuse, racism, oppression. All of these things are being made right in Christ. As, uh, you know, if you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, uh, as Sam Ganji says in the end of Return of the King, everything sad is becoming untrue. And, 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 but here's the thing. For Paul, this isn't just a statement of fact. This is a call to action, okay? And that's what I want to look at here is Paul paints this picture of what God has done in Christ, the summing up of the whole cosmos and the uniting of everything. Paul is irresistibly led to worship. Look at the beginning of our second passage from Ephesians 3. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. That's a statement of praise. That's a statement of worship. Uh, and then he ends that praise with these incredible words. I mean, these are so awesome. I mean, I love, I love reading this. This is actually like what drew me to this sermon. Like when I was reading Ephesians, I read these words and I'm like, this is, this is it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within him, within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so ends the first section of Ephesians. 
So, so what has happened here? Let me, let me recap a little bit. Let me sum it up. Paul has engaged in a very Jewish practice. This is a pattern that we find throughout all the Old Testament. Paul has recalled and he has mediated, meditated, meditated on what God has done, the acts of God. And that has led him to worship. It's what the Old Testament calls remembering. It's why the Psalms are in the Old Testament. What are the Psalms? They're like all these acts of remembering that are supposed to spur the person that is singing these songs. It's supposed to spur the congregation to worship. You know, think for example, remember the day in which you were brought out of Egypt. You know, remember, remember that day. And it's those acts of remembering that are incorporated into Israel's festival, into their liturgy, into their psalms. And that leads them to worship. And it is that worship which is institutionalized in the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath is a sacred day that marks off sacred time. It is in this, it's this worship uh, which takes place in the temple, which is a sacred building that marks off a sacred space. And so it's in this sacred space and time that, it, that an alternate reality really is constructed, like a new universe, and it's being proclaimed. The other six days of the outside work are about things like working and paying taxes and sickness and crap like that. But worship is different. The Sabbath is different. On that day, heaven and earth are temporarily united. And the worshiper stands and contemplates and participates in this alternate reality. A world that is corrective to that of the outside world. That is characterized by things like division and pain and strife and brokenness. In the sacred world of worship, God is, fully in, is, in, fully control, is in full control. And he's fixed those problems. In the sacred world of worship, God challenges all the other powers who claim their own ability to solve these problems. In the sacred world of worship, God challenges all the voices that, that, that claim the inevitability of this condition of the world and the hopelessness of any change. Thus, the sacred world of worship brings hope. And it brings hope based not on a mere wish or on optimism, or empty optimism, but in a God who creates the world, cares about the world, acts in the world, has acted in the world, and has accomplished his purpose. And so as I read this passage at the end of chapter 3, I, I center and I think that the central word here is abundantly, right? So it's God's abundance that this passage says, this verse says that is the power with, is, that is in us, the church. And it's that abundance that leads Paul to such stunning rhetoric. Notice how Paul describes the abundance. More than we ask or think. Think about that. Paul is saying that God's graciousness and generosity is literally beyond our comprehension. Uh, no matter what we imagine, God's graciousness and generosity is bigger. We can't even conceive of it. God gives us more than, at, than we ask because we can't even think to ask it because God's abundance is so much bigger than that. And we find all sorts of examples of that in the Old Testament story, right? Like the story that Paul is familiar with. Uh, for example, think back to the Exodus story. 
So you remember that people have escaped Egypt and they've been led by Moses in the wilderness and they find out the wilderness is not a place that has a lot of food to eat. And so they become desperate uh, and they look around and they get scared. They want to go back to Egypt because they can't imagine a scenario in which the desert wilderness would provide them for food with food. Yet God's graciousness is beyond their limited imagination. Uh, so what does God do when they, when they cry out? He decides that in order to solve this problem, what's he, what's he do? He literally makes it rain bread. I mean, that's insane, right? Like the people are crying out. You know, what are they probably thinking? Like, can you just have like a caravan come by with like some leeks or something? Because, you know, they love those leeks back in Egypt, right? Yeah, I love the leeks, um, right? So that's what they were thinking. And God is like, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. That is what Paul is uh, uh, riffing on, this idea about beyond what we can uh, ask for or think. Now, here's the thing. What we usually do when we read Ephesians, and this is kind of like the part of the point of the sermon here, is we end the sermon here. We end the Bible study. We end the Sunday school class. Like, like listen, 320, uh, Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I mean, Amen. That seems like a good place to like stop, right? That's usually what we do. Um, and then we move on to the next chapter next week, and we start a new sermon because we're in a new section in Ephesians. And, you know, the first half is about the mission of God. We establish that. And then next week we move on the mission of the church. And usually we talk about the first half of Ephesians as like the theology portion, like here's some stuff about God. And then the second half is like the ethical portion. Okay, here's what you need to do. And so God is awesome. We established that. And so we should probably do what God wants us to do. That's kind of how we look at it. However, I think it is this transition from the first half to the second half that provides the vitality and makes Ephesians such an incredible work. Notice how chapter 4, verse 1 begins. I, and then what's the word? Therefore, I, therefore, a prisoner from the Lord, urge you. You see that word, therefore? That word means that Paul doesn't intend to, these next thoughts to be separated from the previous chapter. He doesn't want, he's connecting it to what he just told us. He wants us to read it together. In other words, and to understand what Paul is saying here in chapter 4, we need to keep in mind what Paul was saying in chapter 3, and we need to connect them together. That's what we usually don't do. But I think this is where it all gets like awesome. Paul urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of which they have been called. And he tells the Ephesians what that looks like. It looks like humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing one another's burden, which leads to unity and peace. So if you're like me, okay, like you've heard this before, you read this, and, you know, I usually read this, and, like, you know, my kind of thought is, like, okay, so God's awesome, and he's done so much for me, and now it seems like probably the least I can do is try to be worthy of it, uh, even though I'm a human, and I really... Uh, can't do those things so well, but I should at least try. And here now is a list of vague, churchy, kind of pious-sounding attributes that I need to somehow adopt in my everyday life, okay? That's how I read it, okay? Maybe y'all are more spiritual than me, probably. But when I read it, I'm just like, blah, 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 <laughs> okay? So then 
we act either excessively pious and self-righteous. I did an awesome job of being gentle and patient today, you know, or we feel guilty and, and maybe a little bit hopeless because it's like uh, actually trying to be worthy of something, you know, like God that we can never be worthy of. Okay. But I want to make two points to challenge this view. And I want to, and I'm hopefully what this is going to do is break us out of that cycle. Like get that behind, you know, I'm Baptist, right? Like I grew up Baptist, like I said, you know, where we sing 27 verses of just as I am. Right. And like, you know, the whole point was to feel guilty. Right. <laughs> you know? So like, like when I read this, all I do is feel guilt, you know, but I want to break us out of that because I think we can avoid both those errors, either the error of self-righteousness and piety or the error of, of guiltiness. Uh, uh, if we connect chapter four to chapter three. What I don't think Paul is saying is God is awesome and therefore you now need to follow the rules so you can be worthy of God. Uh, What Paul is doing is something far like cooler and better. Paul is giving us a vision of a world that has been restored and renewed. That's the purpose of God that he's been going through in chapters one through three. And then saying, once you understand this vision, your decision-making, your ethics, your way of living in the world will necessarily and naturally and organically grow out of that understanding. In fact, I would argue that unless you grasp the vision that Paul has laid out in the first three chapters of heaven and earth being summed up in Jesus Christ and are captivated by that, then living the life laid out in chapter four through six is impossible or just kind of stupid or like not really like what's the point? When Paul tells us to live worthy of the calling, see, we tend to read this, this is how I read it, we tend to think of the word worthy as achieving a particular standard, okay? I'll give you an example. So I really, really want to uh, be inducted. The state of North Carolina has this honorary society. It's called the Order of the Longleaf Pine, and I, like, really want to be in it, okay? And the reason why is because one of the cool things about it is you're allowed to deliver, like, you're allowed to deliver the the state toast of North Carolina anywhere in the free world. Okay. That's what it says. Now, if you, if I was in the order of the long leaf pine, okay, I would be doing that like everywhere. I'd be like standing up in the middle of Applebee's or something and being like, everybody raise a glass. And then I would deliver the toast because that would be awesome. That's why I want to be in the order of the long leaf pine. Now, you know, a little something about me, but, um, it's awarded by the governor. And it's awarded by the governor for something like extraordinary service or some exceptional achievement to the community in North Carolina. And the problem is I don't actually want to do that work, okay? Uh, That would, I don't really want to do anything that would make me worthy of that award, okay? So that's the point here. This is, this is kind of how we think about this. Like the way I think about the order of the longleaf pine, right? I need to be worthy of it. I don't think that that is the meaning of the word worthy here. The Greek word is axios, Okay. And it can have that sense. It can have the sense of deserving, like, right? Like I'm like, I wish I was deserving of the order of the long leaf pine, but, but now, now Paul of all people, right? This is Paul we're talking about here. I mean, if you read like his other material, you know, that can't be possibly what he's saying here. You know, Paul's like the guy about a grace, you know, about how we can't work or earn our salvation. So I don't think that was the sense that Paul intends it here. But here's another way you can understand axios. It means befitting or congruent with, like, like it makes sense to do, right? So what Paul is saying is that now that Christ has summed up all things in heaven and earth, 
and knowing that God is restoring and renewing creation, then as Christ's followers who are part of this story and have been captivated by this vision, you should live your life as if that was true. That's what I think being worthy is saying here. In other words, if you are captivated by this vision laid out in chapters 1 through 3, then what is laid out in chapters 4 through 6 just becomes a natural, sensible way of being in the world. How do you become captivated by this vision? Exactly the same way Paul became captivated by this vision. By contemplating the character and actions of God, particularly in worship. Right? That's the point of worship. So let's look at some of these words here that Paul says it'll look like when we become worthy of, uh, of this calling. Humility. So uh, I'm just going to do these real quick. Humility is a lowliness of mind. It's like the opposite of arrogance. It's an understanding that any greatness or ability or attribute or possession or resource is not your own. It is an understanding that we are all recipients of God's grace. And gentleness. Uh, the word for gentleness was originally used to describe a wild animal that had been tamed, like a horse, for example. The horse maintains his strength and power, but that power has been controlled and directed to the purpose of another. Patience. The Greek word here is actually like the, the literal is long passion. Uh, it means like endurance or constancy. It means like playing the long game, looking at the long term, right? It's realizing that being a Christ follower is a marathon and not a sprint. Fourth, bearing one another's burden. Uh, that phrase means like you don't like, you know, if someone like you don't go attack someone. It's, it's got this idea of restraint, tolerance. That's a good word for it, right? So all of these virtues are working together. This isn't just like an arbitrary list of like pious sounding things, like I said. Um, and, and what they do is they achieve unity. And it's the idea of oneness. It's not simple solidarity, but a oneness with Christ. Because these four virtues, if you may notice, humility, gentle, patience, uh, patience and bearing one another's burdens, burdens, were all laid out and modeled in his life and work. I mean, when we think about Christ, that's the kind of things we think about. And these virtues lead to a unity or oneness, but also to a peace, which is, of course, this very Jewish concept of shalom, which is, you know, like more than like just not fighting. It's this idea of harmony, of life being lived with the flourishing that it's supposed to. How does life live that way? How does life live with the, the flourishing? Because God's abundant, right? Remember, it goes all the way back to Ephesians 1.10. God is summing up all of creation in Jesus Christ. And how do we become a part of this work in renewal and restoration? The answer is by living out these virtues exemplified by Christ because they lead to the world that God's trying to create, a world of unity and shalom. You know, that's like, like I said, that's like the whole point, like in the Old Testament, like was we're going to get to this place of shalom. Now, the other point that I want to make here is that these virtues that Paul is, is listing off here, these are really not virtues that were like popular in the Greco-Roman world. When they listed off virtues, this was not the ones they, they picked uh, out. Uh, you know, humility in particular was looked down upon. It was associated with slaves. That's like what slaves were. They were humble. You know, you didn't want to be a slave. In the Greco-Roman world, the people that were admired were those who seized their destiny and used their power to assert their will upon the world. 
You know, like uh, uh, Miles and I have been having these discussions again about the Iliad. And, you know, you remember the story of uh, Achilles. Achilles, the great warrior, has a choice. He can either uh, live his life in peace for like a long time or he can fight in the Trojan War and die, but he'll be remembered forever. And he chooses to fight and die. And like my, my son is like, I like, I just don't get this guy. This is like terrible. And he's like, you know, the only person I really admire in this whole story is Hector. Okay, so Hector's the Trojan uh, general who doesn't want to fight the war, right? And he's forced into it, you know? And we, that was great because we had this whole discussion about how, like, these values are, like, completely different. Like, the Greeks probably, like, admired this guy who would, you know, Achilles' choice, whereas, you know, we're different. We look at this and we, we, we identify with Hector, uh, just like my son did. But so it's these virtues are very different. You know, the whole idea is that you would seize the world, exercise your power, make your mark. Those are the kind of uh, Greco-Roman uh, virtues. Uh, but what Paul is suggesting is a totally revolutionary way of being in the world, which would be nonsense uh, to the people who surrounded them, the people in Ephesus. You remember Ephesus is like a big city. It's like this big port city, like one of the biggest, I think it was probably third, like uh, Rome, Alexandria, and then Ephesus. It was probably like the third biggest city in the Roman Empire at the time. Um, it, it, this would not have made sense to him, but who would it make sense to? People who believe that the world is being renewed and restored, that wrongs are being righted, that unity and shalom are possible because God was fixing the brokenness of the world. And that story had reached its conclusion in Christ, who was summing up all things in heaven and earth. That's who it would make sense to. So what we have done is by connecting chapter three and four together and not just like separating these two but by connecting it better we can better understand what paul is doing here in ephesians what paul is doing is he's trying to captivate the ephesians he's trying to sell them on this big picture idea with this very jewish story of who god is and how he's been working throughout history to restore his good creation and that they've been included in this story and paul is letting them know they can play a role in this amazing work god is bringing about in the world he's not trying to guilt them into being like oh you need to be worthy of this that's not what he's trying to do he's saying like like Look, you can be a part of this. You can live your life as if this was true. That's what we want to do. You're a part of the story now. Uh, and, and they play a role in this. And they live their lives in a manner consistent with the world that is being restored by Christ in Embodying virtues that Christ embody, and they they can meditate, they can remember that God leads them, and take this, and that God leads them to worship, and worship leads to a way of living in the world, and that way of living the world necessarily challenges the existing order. That's the pattern here, right? So that's what we're doing when we're coming to worship. We're coming to worship because like, this is like this sacred time and space where we can turn ourselves to this alternate idea. We can separate ourselves from like the world of work and taxes and stuff like that. And we can sit here and get together and we can like be sold on this alternate vision. And what should that do? It should lead us to guilt about what we haven't done and, and, and how hard it is. No, it should lead us to praise. And when it leads us to praise, it should lead us to think about like, how can we live this vision out? It's an alternate world that we're creating here. How does it work? 
We meditate. We understand. We grasp that the key attribute of God that Paul is using this soaring rhetoric uh, to describe in verse 320. God is characterized by what? Abundance. And it's beyond our imaginations. And if the Ephesians get that, if they get that the abundance is being poured out in generosity and grace in the world, then living in light of that fact means that they will just naturally exhibit uh, virtue, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another's burdens, leading to oneness of unity and peace. If we know we are loved by a gracious God who is active and lavishes all of his creativity and resources upon us, then we don't have to strive to exert our power in the world. We don't have to seize our destiny as might be expected in the Greco-Roman world. If we believe in the abundance of God, we don't have to fight for our piece of the pie because we, we can instead like just know that the generosity and grace in this world uh, is so great that it's okay. The pie is not going anywhere. We can bear one another's burdens. Jesus could feed people with a few loaves of bread and fish. Like that's the whole point of that story is that there is enough. There is abundance. And so far from a list of abstract, pious, churchy ideas, these, these, uh, these virtues flow organically from this vision of God that Paul is describing. And the result for the Ephesian believers and for us is that we live out these virtues in an alternative counter vision to the world, just like they were doing. You know, I spoke about this a few weeks ago in the Palm Sunday sermon, this counter vision. Uh, Part of what we are called to do in the church is live out in this alternative vision in the world, the kind of alternative vision that we should encounter in worship. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to get across in Ephesians. It's a vision where all the old virtues are shown to be false and empty. And a new vision in which a new society of restoration and renewal is modeled. It's a vision based on God's grace and abundance that declares that there is enough. More than enough. There is abundance beyond what we could ever ask or think. Now, go and live like you believe that. All right. Discussion time. Anybody have any thoughts or questions or, again, I- Whenever preachers typically preach in chapter 5 and 6,